0: Alright, um, we'll be, uh, as I said, looking at Judges this morning and I'm going to try to get through everything I want to say about Judges. Um, uh, what I want to do is, uh, first of all, I'm going to uh, talk about the first, we're going to read through sections of the first couple of chapters of Judges uh, to get the overall, uh, overall uh, uh, shape of the book. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the cha- chiastic outline that I have on the notes and then I want to focus on uh, several judges and the stories of several judges. Uh, Gideon and Abimelech, those pair of judges that are at the center of the book of Judges. I want to look at their uh, stories because they highlight the, some of the key themes of the book of Judges. And then I want to talk about Samuel, Samson because Samson is, uh, I think, a often misunderstood uh, character in the book of Judges. And I want to uh, give uh, some uh, some defense, uh, it's not a complete defense of uh, Samson. Samson is not a sinless judge, but I, th- I think that he's uh, often uh, rejected and disparaged and uh, treated as a, as, a, as a wicked man rather than, the, I think, the, the, ju- the just and faithful rule, uh, judge that he no- was by and large. Uh, the last thing I'll do is look at the final chapters of Judges. Uh, all of the Judges' stories are finished by chapter 16 of Judges, Uh, that is by the end of the uh, Samson narrative. Uh, But Judges continues on for another five chapters, and there aren't any Judges in those chapters. Um, Different kinds of characters show up and different kinds of stories are being told in the last chapters of the book of Judges. And so I want to end our session this morning by looking at uh, those stories at the end of Judges and why they're they're there. why are they included in the book of Judges, since they're not stories about Judges, uh, and how those uh, stories at the end of Judges illumine the whole book of Judges and the themes of the book of Judges. Uh, Before I start all that, I want to highlight a chronological, a couple of chronological points uh, about the book of Judges. And I do this partly because uh, I'm not spending a lot of time this week looking at this kind of question, question about the historical uh, accuracy of these accounts uh, I think all the counts that we have what uh, we're talking about are historically accurate. What the Bible records are things that actually happened, and they actually happened the way that they're recorded. Uh, and that goes down even to questions about timing and chronology, uh, geography. Um, there's uh, so I, I, I want to at least touch on some of the chronological issues that come up with the Book of Judges. Uh, there are uh, a biblical chronology has, uh, in, uh, in the last 150 years or so, many Bible scholars have uh, thought that the Bible does not present an accurate or consistent chronology. That is, uh, a chronology counting off years uh, and having a datable, datable timeline. Uh, earlier, earlier ages, of course, believe that uh, the Bible does have a consistent and coherent chronology. Um, Augustine, in his great book, The City of God, spends uh, part of one of his books tracing the chronology of the early centuries of humanity based on the ages of the, of the uh, people are recorded in the line of Seth. Uh, and he argues that you can basically get a chronology of the ancient world. You know how long there was between uh, the creation of the world and the time of Solomon, you can just count it up by looking at the different uh, looking at the different ages and the chronological notes that are in the Bible. Um, uh, you might know the name; uh, uh, can't remember his first name, but the, he was an archbishop in England named Usher, Archbishop Usher, uh, uh, in the 17th century, I think. Uh, did a chronological study of the Bible and determined that uh, the uh, world had been created in f- around 4,000 BC. There are about 4,000 years total up until the time of Christ, uh, and so the age of the age of the world is about 6,000 years, according to Usher. Uh, and again, that those kind of calculations have often been disparaged in the modern world, and its uh, cr- biblical scholars rely much more on other cr- other cultures' chronologies than on the Bible's chronology. Other other cultures provide you, know, you have king lists in, in Babylon, for example, that lists the kings and the ages of the kings. Uh, and uh, uh, they total those up. And you know, here's a different chronology. Um, I think the Bible, the, uh, the Bible is concerned with history, with what actually happens in human history, uh, with the sequence of events in human history. And clearly the Bible is interested in the timing of events. In human history, and the reason you know that is because it keeps mentioning the timing of events, how long things take. Uh, there's this this kind of information is all over the place, especially in the Old Testament. So it it doesn't uh, it it's just not true to say that the uh, biblical writers are not interested in a timeline. They clearly are interested in a timeline. Um, so the, there are a couple of chronological points to uh, bring up about the Book of Judges. One of them has to do uh, with the. Uh, The overall time period of the book of Judges. In 1 Kings 6.1, we're told that it came about in the 480th year after the sons of Israel came out from the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. 480 years from the exodus the time that Israel came out of Egypt until the day when Solomon began to build the house or at least the year that he began to build the house and it gives us the month of the year uh, of the year when he's uh, beginning to build it so 480 years uh, has some uh, n- numbers are are significant in the Bible uh, we can at least take note of 480 being you could factor it into a 12 times 40, 12 being the number of Israel, 40 is the number of, uh, the stereotypical number of a generation. So 12 generations between the time of the Exodus and the time of Solomon. Uh, and there are other things that might uh, might uh, fit in with that, uh, that number. I'm just looking at the literal number at this point, 400, 480 years. So the problem with that in terms of judges is that if you calculate and just count up the periods of all the judges, uh, that period alone, which begins you know, uh, 47 years after the Exodus, because you have the 40 years in the wilderness and then seven years of conquest, so the book of Judges begins at Joshua's death, 47 years after the Exodus, and then you have, if you total up the number of years of all the judges, it comes out to be around 590. And you're not even to Saul yet in those 590 years. So uh, we're already over 600 years between the Exodus uh, and Samson. And then you have uh, Samuel and Saul's reign, which uh, is 40 years. There's some some, uh, work to do on figuring out how long Saul's reign was, but I think it was 40 years long. David's reign is 40 years long, and then another four years before Solomon begins building. So you're over 700 years if you just total up all the numbers. But 1 Kings says... Uh, that it's 480 years between the Exodus and the beginning of the Temple. So, what do we make of that? Uh, just uh, is that would be for some people that would be a sign of an inconsistent timeline in the Bible. Uh, the writer of Kings is working with one timeline. Maybe he's using that 480 number purely for symbolic reasons. It's not it's not a real number. Uh, it's just a symbolic number because it so neatly ties in with Israel and. You know, it's, it's 12 generations and, uh, and Israel number of generations from the Exodus to the temple. Uh, and it's just a symbolic number. Or perhaps there's different chronological, they're counting differently somehow. Okay. Um, I think the better solution is to take both numbers to say that the numbers and the, the judges are real and the 480 years is real. But the time period, the, the, the judges are not... Uh, Simply sequential. You don't just uh, one judge total up the number of the years, then the next judge total up the number of the years, the next judge total up the number of the years. Rather, judges are working in different parts of the land simultaneously. Okay. Uh, so you can uh, you can see this. You can when if you look carefully at where judges are, they're not always in the same place, and they're not dealing with all of Israel at the same time. They're sometimes they're dealing with a, a tribe or a couple of tribes. Uh, in another part of Israel, another, another judge is arising and ruling. Okay. Um, and uh, uh, if, you, if you work out the chronology of the latter part of Judges, which is uh, in, terms of the num- in terms of the sequence of Judges, Samson is the last one who's recorded. Samson is alive at the same time as Samuel. Samuel does not appear in the book of Judges. He doesn't, he doesn't come up until the beginning of 1 Samuel, of course. He's born uh, in the first chapter of 1 Samuel, when Hannah's prayer at the beginning of Samuel. But even though he's in a different book, you don't just add, you don't just add that. Those are over, Historically, they're overlapping. Uh, and uh, if, I, 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 I'm not going to go into the detailed uh, discussion of how we can figure that out, but uh, there are indications that they're overlapping, possibly also Jephthah, Another judge is at a, he's a little bit older, but about the same time as Samson and Samuel. Samson and Samuel are about the same age, born at about the same time, and uh, working in Israel uh, in the same time. Once you you put that chronology together, then several things kind of fall into place. The fact that Samson and Samuel are both dealing with Philistines, you know, you think, okay, Samson ends his life. toppling down the Temple of Dagon, where all of the nobility of Philistia is gathered together for a festival. And then Samuel comes along, if Samuel is not at the same time as Samson, Samuel comes along, and the Philistines have somehow recovered from that catastrophe, and are again oppressing Israel, and Samuel has to, uh, Samuel is also in a, uh, dealing with the time when the Philistines are ascendant. Okay? Uh, if you, if you put them end to end, it doesn't make much sense. If you put them next to each other it makes a lot more sense. Samson knocks down the temple of Dagon uh, many of the uh, nobility of the Philistines die. Uh, that's about the same time that Samuel is leading a battle against the Philistines and the Lord is victorious in that battle and the Philistines are routed okay uh, Or you have you can put together the scenes of the ark going around from t- town to town in uh, town to town of Philistia, you know, the, uh, the ark putting, put in the temple of Dagon at the beginning of Samuel, and Dagon, the, the fish god of the Philistine, keeps bowing down to the ark. Remember that story? Uh, the, the Philistines capture the ark and they put it in their temple. Uh, this is a sign that their god is stronger than Israel's god. They can, they can take the, the throne of Israel's god and that now becomes, uh, Yahweh, the god of Israel, basically becomes a subordinate god to Dagon. But then Dagon knows better, <laughs> and every morning when the priests go into Dagon's temple, Dagon has fallen down in front of the ark. Uh, he's acknowledging the supremacy of Yahweh, uh, and then he breaks in pieces. I, mean, his, uh, his, I guess his feet and his hands break off or something. I can't remember exactly what happens. But Dagon, Dagon, fall, Dagon falls, and he can't get up, and he starts to crack. Okay. That's happening uh, in the same vicinity of time. As the, or that's happening a little bit before the time when Samson is fighting the Philistines, and then uh, having this uh, major uh, blow against the Philistines at his, the time of his death. Okay, so um, that's again. I'm not going to uh, take time. Uh, I don't have the. I don't have my notes in front of me to explain all the details of that. But I think that's. It's it's helpful to see that this chronology is much more compressed than it can look like, and these judges are not always. Uh, right, one right after the other. They're operating at the same time, and uh, shoving together. Well, the latter part of <clears throat> the latter part of uh, Judges and the be- beginning of First Samuel really are taking place simultaneously uh, as a historical issue. The other chronological question that comes up with internally to Judges uh, is uh, concerning the latter episodes in the book of Judges. Okay, if you're if you're reading the book of Judges and you think. <clears throat> One judge follows the other, and we're just being, giving, we're giving a, we're given, being given a simple historical chronicle of one judge, and then the next judge, and then the next judge, and then the next judge. And then you get to the latter chapters when the judges disappear and other kinds of stories are being told. Uh, then uh, those are later than Samson. So you end the judge, series of Judges with Samson. Chapter 17 begins the story of Micah. Uh, and then you have the story of the Levite and his concubine, Uh, those stories must happen after Samson, because they're put after uh, after the story of Samson in the book. But if you look at Judges 20, verse 28, uh, this is uh, in the aftermath of the incident with the uh, Levite and his concubine. We'll talk about that at the end of our session this morning. And Israel goes to inquire of the Lord about what they should do. And verse 20, 28 says, Phineas, the son of Eliezer, Aaron's son, Eleazar is Aaron's son, stood before to minister in those days, saying, shall I yet go up to the battle against the sons of my brother Benjamin, or shall I not? And the Lord said, go up, for tomorrow I will deliver them into your hand. Okay. Phineas is the grandson of Aaron. Phineas... Anybody know where we've met Phineas earlier in the Bible? Yeah, you got it. Uh, The book of Numbers, when there's a, uh, Balaam organizes a deception, seduction of Israel, uh, and uh, Israel is seduced into idolatry, and the men are seduced into adultery. And Phineas, there's a, a, a plague breaks out, and Phineas the priest Brings an end to the plague by impaling, with a spear, impaling uh, a couple that's fornicating inside a tent. Pins them to the ground, kills them together. And then the Lord, that, the Lord stops the plague because of Phineas' zeal for the holiness of God. Okay. That's the same guy who is the, uh, the high priest during the time of this incident at the end of the book of Judges. So even on a short chronology of the book of Judges, If this incident is happening after Samson, we're still talking about Phineas being 200 some years old. (laughs) Um, That's not true. (laughs) He didn't live to be 200 some years old. So what that indicates to us is that this story is something that takes place fairly early in the history of the judges. And then that raises a question about the organization and the shape of the book. right? Why would the writer of Judges put this incident uh, about the Levite and his concubine, which took place early in the period of Judges? Why would he put that way? The, this, is the, this is the last story at the end of Judges. Why would he do that? Why would he put something out of chronological order? Okay. Uh, we'll come back to that question um, uh, later on, but uh, that's, that's a question that's internal to uh, Judges, but you need to need to pay careful attention to the details of the text that have these chronological indications because they may end up being important for the interpretation of certain passages when you realize that things are uh, being organized not simply because of chronological sequence, but they're being organized for some other reason. There's some reason why the writer of the Judges wants the book to climax with that incident rather than to climax with the story of Samson. Uh, that, raises, that raises an important interpretive question. Okay, uh, let's read a little bit of uh, the first chapter of Judges, and I'll, I'll move in, go into the second chapter a bit, too. Um, and this will introduce us to the base, basic structure and themes of the book of Judges, uh, and uh, then we'll focus in on a couple of particular ones. Now, it came about after the death of Joshua that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And Yahweh said, Judah shall go up, behold, I have given, it, given the land into his hand. Then Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I will, re- I will return, go with you, into the territory allotted you. So Judah and Simeon are going to cooperate. Simeon went with them. And Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they defeated 10,000 men at Bezek. And they found, found Adonai Bezek in Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes uh, cut off used to gather scraps under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem. Okay. Um, just a on, note on the last thing. Why? Why do that to a conquered king? Why thumbs and big toes? They don't kill him. We've got opposable thumbs, along with some primates, which means we can grab things, like swords. Cut off thumbs, he's not gonna be much of a warrior. You cut off his big toe, that destabilizes you. Okay. It's hard to walk when you're lacking a big toe. So they've, they've disabled him. It's also retribution, of course, because he used to do the same thing to the kings he conquered, uh, and now God has brought the same fate on him. It's an eye for eye, tooth for tooth kind of uh, justice that the Lord is enacting against this king. <clears throat> so uh, a couple things in this opening, opening sequence. After the death of Joshua, The book begins with death, as Judges did. Moses dies, the the death of Moses is mentioned at the the beginning of Joshua. And that raises the question, what is going to happen to Israel after the death of this great leader? Are they gonna continue in the the trajectory that Moses had set for them? Are they gonna follow the ways uh, of the Lord that were were, uh, revealed through Moses? Or are they gonna deviate from that? And we saw yesterday that, in terms of J- Joshua, the answer is that the Lord raises Joshua as a second Moses. And he's going to become, he, he does a lot of things that Moses did. And he, is, he, he keeps the law before him, he, he acts faithfully, and he, uh, and he leads Israel into conquest. Yeah, Emmanuel. Okay. Uh, so the question comes up here again at the book, beginning of the book of Judges. Now Joshua, the second Moses, is dead. Is Israel going to continue on in the trajectory that they were given? And the first section suggests to us that they are. Okay. Remember uh, yesterday we talked about the distribution of the land uh, doesn't mean that the, Israel's fighting is over. Uh, the Lord is enthroned as the king of the land but there's still territories that need to be conquered and to, need to be brought under Yahweh's control and under Yahweh's rule. His kingdom has to spread all throughout the land and it hasn't yet. And the way that's gonna happen is by the individual tribes continuing the conquest in their own territories. So they, they get a parcel of land, they get the, the dimensions of the boundaries of their territory, but they're still Canaanites in many of these places and they're supposed to carry on those battles uh, as individual tribes. Okay. And uh, Judah is doing that. right? Judah is cooperating with Simeon and Judah and Simeon together are fighting against the Canaanites and the Perizzites uh, and against Adonai Bezek, uh, and they defeat Adonai Bezek. Uh, and it looks like uh, the leaders of Judah and the leaders of uh, Simeon, at least, are going to carry on the program that Joshua started. So Joshua dies, something like a new Joshua comes in, to birth in the, in the uh, tribes of Judah and Simeon. And that, uh, that continues uh, in, the way, in the account of Judah um, up through verse 20 of chapter 1. There's a couple of other uh, little incidents that are in there that I won't take time to look at. But Judah starts out well. But then verse 21 says, But the sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the sons of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Likewise, the house of Joseph went up against Bethel the Lord is with them. And the house of Joseph spied out Bethel, and the spies saw a man coming out of the city. They said to him, please show us an entrance to the city. We'll, show, uh, we'll treat you kindly. They showed them the entrance to the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and his family go free. And the man went into the house, land of the Hittites and built a city and called it Luz. That is its name until this day. Okay. Uh, so Benjamin doesn't conquer. Uh, Joseph, uh, that's the tribe of Ephraim, conquers. Verse 27, Manasseh did not take possession of Bethsheen and all these others, uh, all these other uh, territories. And then it continues, it ends up with a list of seven of the tribes, and after Judah and Simeon are doing well and Ephraim is doing pretty well, the other tribes that are listed here in chapter one are, doing, uh, are not fulfilling the, uh, the program. They're not they're carrying out the mission. The mission is to conquer. They're supposed to continue to clear all the idols out of the land, so that everyone in the land worships the Lord. And Zebulun and Asher uh, and Naphtali don't do that. And in fact, by the time we get to Naphtali, it's not only that they're not conquering the Canaanites, but they become forced labor and slaves to the Canaanites. So uh, with Naphtali, the relationship between Israel and the Canaanites is reversed. Verse 33 says, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth or the inhabitants of Beth-Ana, Anan, but lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, and the inhabitants of Beth-Shemesh and Beth-Anath became forced labor for them. For the Amorites forced the sons of Dan into the hill country, and they did not allow them to come down to the hills. Yet the Amorites persisted in living with Mount, in Mount Herez, in Ejelon and Shalbim, and when the power of the house of Joseph grew strong, they became forced labor. Okay. Uh, so that naturally doesn't drive out the uh, the Uh, the the Canaanites, it looks like, I think I might have misread that, it looks like the people of the land become forced labor for them. In any case, these tribes are not carrying out the mission that they were given by Joshua. So Joshua's death has created the crisis. Some of the tribes are carrying on the mission that they're supposed to, but many are not. And uh, as we'll see throughout the book of Judges, uh, instead of uh, controlling and and conquering the Canaanites, uh, the Canaanites and related tribes end up uh, controlling and conquering Israel. Now the question is why is this happening? What is, what's wrong with the tribes of Israel that they're not fulfilling this mission? Uh, and we could anticipate from our study in J- Joshua and from the book of Deuteronomy that the issue is not a question of military tactics or thank you uh, military tactics or uh, of uh, military courage but the issue is one of obedience to the Lord okay uh, and that's what we find out at the beginning of chapter two So do we have a we have a mixed result at the beginning of this period of the judges uh, and then uh, the angel of Yahweh comes to the sons of Israel and brings this, uh, this, these charges against them. The angel of Yahweh is functioning like a prophet. Uh, we'll talk about prophets uh, when we get to the book of Kings later in the week. Um, uh, prophets are, uh, 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 among other things, prophets are, are uh, bring, uh, bring the Lord's lawsuit against Israel. Israel violates the covenant, and the prophet comes and brings charges against Israel and says, Here are the ways that you've broken covenant, and here are the consequences of your failure to keep covenant. And that's what this um, angel is doing at the beginning of chapter 2. The angel of the Lord came from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you out of the land of Egypt and led you to the land which I swore to your fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you. As for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land, you shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed me. What is this that you have done? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you. But they shall become as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. And it came about when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they uh, named the place Bochim, and there there they sacrificed to the Lord. So the, the the reason why they're not conquering has to do with their failure to. Uh, obey the Lord. Uh, they are not tearing down the shrines as they were commanded to, and so the Lord is leaving those tribes, those other peoples in the land to be a source of a source of, uh, a source of uh, well, to be thorns in their sides, uh, and to uh, be like uh, uh, be, a, be a curse to them uh, rather than being driven out. Okay. Uh, and chapter 2 also recounts for us the basic uh, recurring cycle of events that happens over and over again in the book of Judges. Uh, beginning in verse 11, it says, "...the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples and were, who were around them, and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger." They forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. And the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. Thank you. Uh, And he gave them into the hand of the plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of the enemies around them, so they could not stand against their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had spoken, and as the Lord had sworn to them, so they were severely distressed. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them, Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after their other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do as their fathers. When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from from the hand of their enemies. All the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers. In following other gods to serve and bow down to them, they did, they did not abandon the practices or, the start, or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. Okay, that's the cycle we're going to see over and over again. Israel is going to uh, begin to serve the gods of the nations, uh, surround them. The Lord says, you want to serve the gods of the nations? You want to be like the Midianites. You want to be like the Philistines, you want to be like the Amorites, okay. I'll show you what it's like living like an Amorite. Uh, I'll send the Amorites in or the Midianites in or the Moabites in and they'll conquer you and then you can be what you wanted to be which is uh, you know, you can be Midianites. We're serving the Midianite gods. The Lord gives them over, hands them over to uh, the sin that they're already committing in a sense. Right? They're already serving the gods of these nations and the Lord says, okay, why don't you just go all full in and become members of these nations? And he does that by sending conquerors to them. And when the conquerors have oppressed Israel, Israel is greatly distressed and the people begin to cry out uh, uh, to the Lord for deliverance. Begin end of verse 18. The Lord was moved to pity by the groaning of those who had oppressed them. So they cry out to the Lord and the Lord in his mercy raises up a judge. Who delivers them? A judge in this, uh, in this, uh, in the book of Judges, most of the judges are never. We never see them acting like judges in the sense that we think of a judge, that is, hearing cases and passing uh, sentences and verdicts. Uh, the one judge that really functions that way is Deborah. Uh, we see her holding court uh, in uh, Judges chapter four. She's holding court under a tree. So people would come up, with, come up to her with uh, problem cases and she'd, she'd judge them. Most of the judges are, uh, they're judges in the sense that they're agents of God's judgment. They're carrying out God's judgment against Israel's oppressors. Uh, and they're judges in the sense that they're rulers. But usually we don't hear much about what they're doing after they've delivered Israel. We know that they rule for a certain period of time, but exactly how they rule and what their responsibilities are, we don't know. Um, So the the Lord listens to Israel, responds, and sends a a deliverer. Israel is raised up out of their oppression, given a new lease on life, uh, and they serve the Lord and uh, continue to worship the Lord as long as the judge lives. And then the death of the judge is, again, the crisis point, just like the death of Joshua was a crisis point. And every time a judge dies, a judge who has led Israel in faithfulness for the time of his life uh, during the during his lifetime every time a judge dies Israel just slips right back in to serving other gods i mean one one way to think about this christologically is that what Israel needs is a judge who doesn't die they need a permanent judge right or a judge who dies and then comes back and won't die again cuz the death of the judge the death of the ruler is the is the big crisis point and it's uh, because of, because the reign of death, uh, Israel is under the reign of death, that's why Israel keeps falling back into sin. Okay, so this whole cycle is the cycle of the Exodus. Uh, Israel was in Egypt. They are initially favored by Pharaoh, right? Because of Joseph. They're given the land of Goshen. They have an in, kind of independence in the land of Goshen. And uh, because of Joseph's influence, the, Lord, uh, uh, the Pharaoh treats them well. But well, then a Pharaoh arises who does not know Joseph, and the Pharaoh uh, puts them to hard labor, he gets frightened because they're, they're reproducing too fast. Uh, there's, there's too many Israelites, and he's worried that if Egypt is attacked by another nation, that the Israelites will join the other nation and begin fighting for them, you know. Like if Russia attacks Ukraine, there might be Russians in Ukraine who joined with the Russian troops and, you know, a fifth column it's called. So Pharaoh is Pharaoh is worried that the Israelites would become enemies if uh, somebody else invades. So he tries to halt the growth and the expansion of Israel by killing the boy children of Israel and putting Israel to hard labor. Okay, so you have the same seri- the same scene at the beginning of Exodus as you have repeatedly in Judges with the people of, uh, of uh, the people of Israel under the oppression of a foreign power, an oppressive, unjust, evil power. Uh, and Israel in Egypt groans and cries out, and the Lord hears their groaning. That's what he tells Moses when, he, uh, when the Lord calls Moses at the burning bush. I have heard their cries. I've heard their groaning, and I'm raising you up, Moses, as their deliverer. Moses is kind of the model judge who leads Israel out of the land of Egypt and he, he, uh, he delivers them from that oppression. And as long as he lives, Israel remains more or less faithful. I mean, there's certainly ups and downs in Israel's life. Okay. Um, but then Moses dies and we have the crisis again. And in, in, the, in that case, uh, things go well after the death of the deliverer. They're not going well after the death of the judges. The one thing that seems a little odd when we say each of the judges is a kind of new Moses, uh, delivering Israel from another kind of Pharaoh, another another Egyptian kind of oppression. Uh, They don't lead them out of the land, they don't make a geographic transition, but they make a transition in their political and economic and social circumstances. They're delivered, they're they're no longer slaves, and they're freed uh, to be independent again. The one thing that seems an anomaly is to go back to the beginning of the cycle. The beginning of the cycle in Judges is Israel's idolatry. right? Uh, that's why the Lord sends the foreign powers in because Israel has turned from the Lord to other gods and the Lord gives them over to their idolatry and gives them over to the nations who serve those idols. So uh, is that part of the original Exodus story? If you read the book of Exodus, it doesn't seem so. It looks like uh, Israel is expanding, Israel is getting stronger, and then you just randomly have this pharaoh that starts oppressing them and killing, killing infant boys uh, and putting them to hard labor and trying to st- stamp them out. Uh, but we find out actually at the end of the book of Joshua that uh, Israel had been uh, worshiping the gods of the Egyptians while in Egypt, uh, look at Joshua 24, 14, and 15. This is uh, in the, the last, I, t- I t- talked briefly about this yesterday. We had this covenant renewal event at the end of the book of Joshua. Um, and this is part of the, Joshua's exhortation to the people. Now, therefore, fear Yahweh and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river, that's the river Euphrates, those would be the gods of the Babylonians, and in Egypt, and serve Yahweh. And if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods whom your father served when they were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in, uh, in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Okay. So verse 14 tells us that, it's the first time we learn about this. It, you read through Exodus, if you're reading straight through the Bible, you read through Exodus and uh, Leviticus and Numbers and all of Deuteronomy and almost all of Joshua and suddenly a key element of the Exodus story is revealed in this final speech of Joshua, that Israel was serving the Egyptian gods and one of the reasons why uh, Israel was given over to Pharaoh was because the Lord was judging them for their idolatry, okay? Uh, that's one of the things that once you once you have that in mind, then you can you can start seeing some other things that are happening in the Book of Exodus that are interesting. You, you know, the The first three, um, the first three plagues, hit both Israel and Egypt, the land of Goshen and the Egyptians. After that, the Lord makes a distinction, and the plagues only fall on the Egyptians. Um, Well, you think about that, think about that in the light of Joshua 24, 14. The Lord is judging Egypt at the beginning of the plagues, but that includes the Israelites because they basically become Egyptians by worshiping the Egyptian gods. So part of the point of the first three plagues is to call Israel away from the gods of Egypt to create the distinction between Israel and Egypt. It's almost as if that distinction didn't exist, but once the plagues start coming, and Moses tells the people, you know if you want to escape the plagues, you need to serve the Lord. The plagues are gonna keep coming, so if you want to escape them, serve the Lord, Uh, uh, separate yourself from the Egyptians. Those those judgments are part of the Lord's creation of a separate Israel, because Israel had become assimilated to the Egyptians, uh, as they are continuously assimilated to these different nations in the book of Judges. Okay. So each of these these cycles in the book of Judges, you have this over and over again. You have seven primary judges. I have those listed on your notes. You have seven primary judges and then a a handful of lesser judges. But in each case, you have the same cycle. Uh, uh, Idolatry. Uh, The Lord gives them over to their idolatry, which means they're enslaved by some foreign power. When they're enslaved, they cry out to the Lord, for deliverance and the Lord hears them and the Lord responds by raising up a judge and as long as the judge is alive, they're faithful, then the judge dies, they go back to idolatry, they go back into slavery, Uh, they cry out, the Lord raises another judge, the judge dies, they go back into idolatry. Okay, I'm gonna act that out for you. This is the moment of drama, dramatic arts, in our lecture today. This is the way I taught my kids the book of Judges when they were little. It starts simply, this is the book of Judges in a very simple form. You'll notice I'm walking in something like a circle. Same thing happening over and over again, right? That's the book of Judges. Now we add drama, gestures, okay. It starts with idolatry. Bowing down to foreign gods. It leads to slavery and oppression. So I'm, the gesture here is that I'm the slave master with a whip. Then the people are enslaved in the whip. They cry out to the Lord. And the Lord raises up a judge. And then the judge dies and the people go back. Okay, you get the idea. Uh, I have no encore. All right, that's what's happening Uh, throughout the book of Judges, over and over and over again. uh, Israel can't get out of this cycle. Uh, One thing to note here that will lead uh, lead us to uh, uh, get us into perspective on the latter uh, portions of Judges. One thing to notice here is that this is a story of Israel's political history because they're constantly being enslaved by other nations, conquered and enslaved by other nations. But the real root of that political history is not political or it's not, it doesn't, it's not about the, uh, their uh, political system or their, uh, the quality of their leaders or anything. The root problem is idolatry. And I think that's one of the main lessons of the book of Judges, and one that we can uh, apply universally. All right, in in the states, there are, Christians are agitated often by uh, political trends and cultural trends. I'm agitated by po- political and cultural trends. I'm not trying to distance myself from those uh, from those worries. Uh, there are a, m- a number of ways in which the our our country is drifting from a Christian heritage, drifting from God, drifting from any uh, semblance of biblical morality. Uh, and the, the the tendency and the instinct is to try to find political solutions, you know, and that happens a lot in the United States. You have various people that uh, try to uh, get some kind of, uh, organize around certain candidates for office, around a certain, uh, certain political figure. Um, you know, a messianic political figure like Donald J. Trump, the messiah of America, the savior of the world. Uh, strangely, weirdly, a lot of Christians in America think, think Trump in that way. That's a bizarre thing. But uh, in any case, uh, they try to, fi- try to find political solutions. But that's, that's just hitting the symptom. The issue, is not, uh, the issue is not the political system or the political leaders. The root issue is always idolatry. Who are the people of God worshiping? And have they given their hearts over to some kind of idol? And that can, you know, in, in Judges, it's, it's, it's obvious when, you're, when Israel's worshiping idols. Because this is an encore. It's obvious that they're worshiping idols because they're doing this, right? There's images there and they're bowing down to the images of false gods, okay? Uh, the idols of, uh, of modern Christians are much more subtle you know, idolatries of money, idolatries of power, idolatries of comfort and safety, and other kinds of—it's uh, often idolatry of the self. Um, those are much more subtle, but that's idolatry is always the issue. Uh, that doesn't mean that the political—that uh, addressing the political circumstances is useless or unimportant, but it doesn't get to the heart of things. It doesn't really get to the root. So the the, the issue—if uh, you're if you're in a if if you're in a situation where there's political turmoil, uh, and if the you're in a situation where Christians are kind of being marginalized or uh, or even persecuted, um, that can be a, they're sharing in the in the uh, in the sufferings of Christ. But you always need to be thinking: Is this discipline for our idolatries, and is the Lord putting us under this? under this oppression in order to wake us up and to help uh, lead us to turn from other gods, okay? All right, um, I'll say a few more things uh, and then we'll take a break. I think I wanna take a break. Yeah, I'll, I'll say a few more things and from the notes uh, highlight a couple of things on these, uh, the structural issues that I have there. Uh, I, I've uh, reproduced is a chiastic outline that comes from Jim Jordan's commentary on judges. Uh, that's showing the chiasm of the book of Judges. Uh, I'm not going to spend time with that except to point to the center of the book of Judges, which uh, in Jim's analysis is uh, the uh, the judgeship of Gideon um, in chapter 6 through 8, and we'll be looking at that after our break. Uh, and uh, the reason why that's central, I think, is because that, and particularly the next, that in combination with the next chapter, which is the story of Abimelech, who is Gideon's son, those two chapters together are the central chapters that deal with the question of kingship in the Book of Judges. Um, uh, Abimelech is the one judge who takes the title of king to himself. Uh, But Gideon, as we'll see, already begins to take on the trappings of a king, even before, he doesn't take the title, Uh, although, uh, avi Melech anybody know what uh, Abimelech Avi Melech what does that mean, oh, what does that mean? yeah av, Avi av. it's a Semitic Yo, you've got it in your, in your name Av. Ab father. Father. father Avi is my father and Melech is king so Gideon never calls himself king in fact, he refuses kingship, but then he calls—he calls his son, "My father is king." Okay. <laughs> <All right>. Huh? <laughs> so uh, Gideon is Gideon is a faithful judge, but then, uh, as the uh, outline shows, he falls, and we'll look at that in more detail. But that raises the question of kingship in Israel. Abimelech is the one guy who calls himself king, and he's a disaster. And that's important for understanding what's happening again at the le- in the latter chapters of Judges, because. It's in those last chapters, the last five chapters, that you have this refrain, uh, there was no king in Israel, everyone did what is right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel, everyone did, his right, did what is right in his own eyes. Uh, so the latter chapters are dealing with kingship too, but I'd, we have to read those latter chapters and what they're saying about kingship in the light of what happens at the center of the book uh, with Gideon and Abimelech. Okay, So um, we'll come back to that uh, after the break. Uh, I have the, the list of the seven major judges there on your notes, just for your reference. Uh, and then uh, another indication of the symmetry or the organization of the book is the um, you, you have a, a bookends around, call them bookends, bookends around the book, similar scenes at the beginning and end of a book. That's, that's often a, 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 a simple way to get the, a sense of the flow of a biblical book. Look at the situation at the beginning, look at the situation at the end. Uh, What what has changed and what's the same between the two? And that can often give you a clue to some of the basic themes of the book. Uh, Like the book of Exodus, for example, begins in Egypt, ends at Sinai. At the beginning of the book of Exodus, Israel is building for Pharaoh. At the end of the book of Exodus, Moses has just built the tabernacle. Uh, At the beginning of Exodus, Israel, they're slaves of Pharaoh at the end of Exodus. Uh, they've been freed from Pharaoh, but they're not, uh, they're still servants. They're slaves of Yahweh. So that there's a transfer of master that's gone on. Um, uh, they uh, were given labor in Egypt without any rest. You have to make bricks without straw and you have to, you have to work continuously. And you can't go three days into the wilderness and celebrate a feast to, to Yahweh. Pharaoh won't let them do that. Um, at the end of Exodus, they're in, they're in the wilderness. They're celebrating a feast, Tiave, in the wilderness. And one of the dominant themes of the latter part of Exodus is uh, repeated commands to keep, to keep Sabbath. They've moved from, from slavery to Sabbath. That's one of the big uh, thematic movements of the book of Exodus. So if you look at the, the book, end, the two ends of the book, you can often get uh, a sense of the whole sweep. Here I'm just pointing to these couple of scenes at the beginning and end of the book, uh, just to show that there's a kind of symmetry between the beginning and end. At the beginning of the book, we have this little scene with um, Caleb. This is in uh, chapter one, 11 through 15. Caleb offers the city to anyone who, uh, actually, sorry, actually offers his daughter as a bride to anyone who would conquer a city. The conqueror receives the bride from the father. Okay. Uh, and then we have the, his daughter, Aksa, comes up on her donkey uh, and asks her father for the springs of water in addition to the city that her, uh, that her, husband, has, um, her husband has won, okay? Uh, maybe a, I think a neat little typology there. The father offers a bride to the conqueror and the conqueror becomes his son-in-law. Uh, the father offers the bride, the church, to the conqueror, his son. Uh, and his son receives, uh, and his, his his new daughter-in-law receives the springs of water, life-giving water, life-giving spirit. I think a little a little glimpse of the gospel uh, there. So we have a woman on a donkey. Chapter nineteen, toward the end of the book, the part of the story of the Levite and the concubine is the concubine's corpse uh, on a donkey. Right. Um, that's a that's a jarring juxtaposition, we have women on donkeys at the two ends of the book, but it's a very different kind of scene. We have uh, Axa, the daughter of Caleb at the one hand, who is uh, petitioning her father for additional blessing, uh, and she is a bride. Uh, At the end, we have a dead bride, a dead concubine, uh, who's been uh, raped and abused to death in the Benjamite city of Gibeah. Uh, those Those two scenes, which have the, the similar motif of the woman on, on a donkey. Those, uh, those two scenes uh, kind of summarize the decline and, and uh, the, the, uh, the decay of Israel during the time of uh, the judges. We have the same thing with uh, the Kherom warfare, which uh, begin, we have just references to that in the opening chapter. Uh, explicit reference in chapter one verse 17. Judah went with Simeon and his brother and they struck the Canaanites living in Zeph- Zephath, Zephath- and utterly destroyed it. Utterly destroy is the word for haram Put it under the ban. So the name was called Horma, Hormah, Hormah That The name of the uh, city is named because it was put under haram okay. That's cherim warfare directed at Canaanites, which is what Israel's supposed to be doing. Uh, at the end of the book, in the last scene, I'll anticipate what I'm gonna discuss in more detail, but. Um, the, a Levite and his concubine come into the Benjamite city of Gibeah. Um, the men of Gibeah want to know the, the Levite. Know the Levite. Uh, and they uh, surround and the house where he's staying. This is, this is Sodom, okay? This is the same scene as happens in, in Genesis 18 uh, and 19. Uh, Gibeah, a city in Benjamin, a city in Israel, has become a Sodom. And when the other tribes, uh, the, the Levite takes his concubine, divides up the body of the concubine into 12 pieces and sends the, dismantled, the dismembered corpse, parts of the dismantled corpse of his, bri- of his concubine out to the different tribes. Okay. A message about what the city of Gibeah has done. Uh, a gruesome message and is calling on the tribes of Israel to come and do something about it, to intervene. And the Benjamites refuse, instead of turning over their brothers in the city of Gibeah Gibeah, uh, to be tried and punished for for their sin, they defend Gibeah. And so we have a battle between a war at the end of the book of Judges, not between Israelites and Canaanites, but between all the tribes of Israel and Benjamin. And they carry out a kind of haram warfare against the Benjamites. Uh, leaving the Benjamites uh, destroyed and bereft. There's a there's a little upturn at the end of the book of Judges that we'll talk about. Uh, end of that story that we'll talk about. But again we see the, the, the shift or the decline in the book of Judges in those two little scenes at the beginning and the end of the book. At the beginning at least some of the tribes are doing what they're supposed to do. Continuing the warfare against the Canaanites. Uh. But at the end of the book, thats it's all uh, devolved into civil war. And uh, we have the corruptions of Sodom, the corruptions of uh, the Canaanites have taken root in the, in the tribe of Benjamin. And we have harem warfare being conducted against uh, one of the tribes of Israel.